Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer officially announces his retirement. He will leave his position at the end of the current term sometime this summer. President Biden will announce his nominee by the end of February. Attorneys General from 12 states visit the Rio Grande Valley for a border summit. The Texas governor invited them to witness the severity of the border crisis firsthand. Thousands of Canadian truckers are en route to the Parliament of Canada to protest vaccine mandates. They're meeting with an outpouring of support, including truckers from the United States, who will soon rally behind them along the U.S.-Canada border. It's been 77 years since imprisoned Jews were freed from Auschwitz, the largest Nazi concentration camp. The son of an Auschwitz survivor recounts the miraculous event that led up to his mother's freedom. Weather forecasts predict a severe winter storm will hit the northeast tomorrow night. What should we expect and how can we prepare? We hear from an expert from the National Weather Service. Justice Breyer was joined by President Biden today as he announced his retirement from the nation's highest court. Biden committed to nominating the first black woman to the bench. We'll know his official pick by next month. NTD's Melina Weiskup starts us off tonight. At the White House today, a special visit from 83-year-old Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. He and President Biden made a joint announcement of his retirement. I can't tell you, this is sort of a bittersweet day for me. Justice Breyer and I go back a long way, all the way back to the mid-70s when he first came on the Judiciary Committee. But and after 27 years of serving in the nation's highest court, Breyer gives some words of advice to the next justice to fill his shoes. I want to say, look, uh, of course people don't agree, but we have a country that is based on human rights, democracy, and so forth. But who will fill his seat? Biden has not made a decision, but it will be the first black woman to take the bench. It will be someone with extraordinary qualifications, character, experience, and integrity. And that person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. I'm going to invite senators from both parties to offer their ideas and points of view. He committed to making his final pick by February. Some have speculated that Judge Jackson will be tapped by Biden. Jackson was recently nominated to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. But how quickly will the Senate move? We're in the process. No one's been chosen yet. So it, it's a little early to predict the timetable for this hearing. The Democrat majority in Congress means that whoever fills the seat will be a liberal justice. But that won't change the makeup of the court, which is now at six conservative-leaning and three liberal-leaning justices. Confirming a lifetime appointment of a liberal judge will give Democrats something to cheer about through midterm elections. Justice Breyer says he's retiring in late June or July, assuming that his replacement has been confirmed. So we're expecting to see a smooth transition this summer once Justice Breyer is officially retired and replaced. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is inviting attorneys general from 12 states to the southern border for a two-day border summit. He's renewing criticism of the Biden administration for failing to secure the border. He also accuses TikTok of helping human traffickers. 
The Texas governor and the state's attorney general invited 12 attorneys general from across the country to tour the southern border and witness the severity of the border crisis. The governor on Thursday briefed them on two major problems, human trafficking and illegal drugs. Cartels in Mexico are using TikTok to advertise to recruit smugglers in Texas and San Antonio, Houston and other cities in Texas and maybe some other states. TikTok should be ashamed, condemned and have a legal action brought against it for promoting human trafficking in Texas and the United States of America. U.S. Customs and Border Protection performed enforcement actions on over 1.9 million illegal border crossers last year. That's three times more than the number in 2020. The Texas Department of Public Safety has also helped the Border Patrol arrest illegal border crossers and trespassers. We've had over, over 10,000 arrests we've made, criminal arrests, and uh, criminal trespass, over 2,500 criminal trespass arrests, which are embedded in that. We've had between ourselves and National Guard and game wardens working together, we've had over 196, almost uh, over, over 200,000 by now, individuals that were referred to, uh, been apprehended and referred to Border Patrol. The Texas governor wants to remind the attorneys general that the border crisis impacts not just border communities, but the entire country. As law enforcement officers from across the country, we join together because we all believe in something that the country was founded upon, and that is the rule of law. The rule of law that Joe Biden has abandoned, the rule of law that we as law enforcement officers and governors are going to step up and address. The two-day summit is taking place Thursday and Friday in the Rio Grande sector of the border. Texas officials are giving participants tours of the border wall and the Rio Grande River. And the attorneys general are meeting with top officials from law enforcement agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Today marks the 77th anniversary of the day imprisoned Jews were liberated from Auschwitz what was the largest and ghastliest Nazi concentration camp. Around the world, people are revisiting the stories of the failed attempt to annihilate the Jewish people. The son of an Auschwitz survivor gave us an account of the miraculous moment that his late mother was freed. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. The goal was to kill every single Jew for nine months, the mother of Dove Hyken was imprisoned at the Auschwitz concentration camp, a Nazi complex that operated for roughly five years. Thursday marks 77 years since prisoners were freed from that monstrous creation in which roughly 1.1 million were murdered. She was about uh, 19 years old uh, in 1944 uh, when she ended up in Auschwitz with her family a mother, brothers, sisters, nephews, uh, nieces, uh, who all arrived uh, on that infamous platform uh, in Auschwitz, getting off the cattle cars. Prisoners were forced to labor, were starved, abused, experimented on, and sent to gas chambers. Diseases thrived amongst the captives. Epidemics were partly fostered by unsanitary conditions. Before the camp was liberated, the Nazis evacuated tens of thousands of Jews in what are now known as death marches. Dobe says that his late mother, Frida Heiken, was in one of them. My mother told this amazing story to me 
that I, of course, will never, ever forget. There was a point after they were forced, you know, to march. They were all lined up at one point, all these women, hundreds, thousands of women. And facing them were the Nazis, the Gestapo, the SS, with their weapons in their hands. My mother told us that she closed her eyes and she said, Shema Yisrael. She prayed to God because she believed it was over. She believed it was that she was going to die right there. And then she said, she opened her eyes and couldn't believe that the SS had literally disappeared as if they literally fell into the earth. Hyken says that at that point, his mother was free. The world may celebrate the anniversary of Auschwitz's liberation, but Hyken says that in his view, people don't take anti-Semitism as seriously as they should. And he asks that people unite against hate. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. The Coast Guard has suspended its search for 34 people still missing off the coast of Florida. The announcement comes five days after a vessel capsized on its way to Florida from a chain of islands in the Bahamas. Authorities found a total of five bodies off the coast of Miami. A Coast Guard captain said today they don't think it's likely that anyone else survived. The lone survivor, who was found clinging to the boat, said no one on the vessel was wearing a life jacket. Homeland Security has launched an inquiry and considers the journey to be part of a human smuggling operation. And weather forecasts predict a severe winter storm to hit the northeast. But what exactly can we expect? And how should we prepare? NTD's Chenny Wu spoke with a meteorologist from the National Weather Service. The National Weather Service has released warnings that starting Friday, much of the Northeast could be hit by a bomb cyclone, a winter storm that intensifies very rapidly. Snow and blizzard conditions are expected to last until Saturday night. Brian Jackson, a meteorologist at the National Weather Service, says most of the eastern seaboard will likely be impacted. We are expecting from, um, from the uh, Carolinas all the way up through Maine, so it'll be tens of millions of people affected to some extent. He says parts of southeast New England will be hit the hardest. That includes Connecticut, Massachusetts and Rhode Island. New York's Long Island will also be impacted, as well as eastern Pennsylvania, which includes Philadelphia. You know, a true blizzard-like condition and you know, 50 miles an hour wind, wind-driven snow and you know, more than a foot of it uh, is pretty extreme. Adding that a storm this size happens on average once a year. Jackson says areas with heavy snow may experience scattered power outages that could last a few days, and people should stock up on groceries and other necessities in advance. So in terms of preparations, those really should be done today. He reminds people on the East Coast to pay attention to their local weather forecast. Milder weather is expected for the rest of the country. Chenny Wu, NTD News. The teenage suspect in the deadliest U.S. school shooting of 2021 is pursuing an insanity defense. That's according to a notice filed by his lawyers today. This should lead to mental health exams for Ethan Crumbly before any trial. He was 15 at the time of the mass shooting, which killed four and left seven wounded at a Michigan high school in November. Prosecutors say they intend to rebut Crumbly's defense Meanwhile, the family of one of the slain students filed a new lawsuit today. They say Crumbly's parents, who brought him, 
who bought him a gun are equally liable. Crumbly is facing 24 charges as an adult, including terrorism causing death and first-degree murder. He pleaded not guilty earlier this month. His parents, James and Jennifer Crumbly, have also pleaded not guilty to charges of involuntary manslaughter. And a federal judge is temporarily halting a rule in South Dakota. The rule would make it harder for women to get abortion pills. It's from an executive order by Governor Kristi Noem. U.S. District Judge Karen Schreier granted the request from Planned Parenthood yesterday. The rule was set to go into effect today. It would require women to consult with a doctor in person twice before they can get abortion pills. Planned Parenthood reacts to the judge's decision, saying they are, quote, relieved that South Dakotans' access to medication abortion remains unchanged for right now. The governor says the rule is necessary for women's safety and that she's not backing down from making it into law. About 40% of all abortions in the U.S. are now done through abortion pills. And with midterm elections later this year, are there any steps that can be taken that make it easier to vote and harder to cheat? The Heritage Foundation held a panel to discuss just that. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C., where you need to show an identification and a vaccine card to enter a gym or a restaurant, but you do not need to show an ID to vote. And that's the same for many states across the U.S., but a Monmouth National poll showed 80% of people support requiring a photo ID to vote. Critics of voter ID laws say they discriminate against minorities and that there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud. But Heritage Foundation's John Malcolm says that voter fraud doesn't have to be widespread to change the outcome of an election if the race is close. Recently in Compton, California, three people who were accused of stealing votes in a city council election pleaded guilty. That race ended up being decided by one vote. And a 2020 election for a town council seat in Eatonville, Florida, was overturned by a judge and a new winner was declared because of voter fraud. Hans von Spakovsky, an attorney and former member of the Federal Election Commission, said he and John Malcolm got tired of reading articles saying there is no election fraud and no need to worry about it. So they started an election fraud database on the Heritage Foundation website. It's unique. It's the only one in the, in the country that we know of. Um, it only has proven cases of fraud in it. Someone's been convicted in a court of law or a judge has ordered a new election like the uh, elections that John was talking about um, were up to 1,340 cases. The Heritage Foundation also created an election integrity scorecard, which grades each state's election integrity based on 12 categories, such as voter ID implementation and accuracy of voter registration list. Jessica Anderson, who is the executive director at Heritage Action for America, explains how it can help improve election integrity. I love the scorecard because it's so easy to use. It lets me click my state, see where my gaps are, what can I do to increase my score. There's draft model legislation I can download. And so as a grassroots activist, as a citizen activist, I can then go to my state lawmaker and I can encourage them to tackle this and to take it on uh, this year in their state legislative chambers. Even after the Democrats' failed attempt to establish new federal voting laws, issues of election integrity will continue to be a hot topic as midterm elections are approaching. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. 
A New York City ethics panel has agreed that Mayor Eric Adams can hire his brother as a senior security advisor. But he'd only get paid $1 per year and would have no power over department personnel. Adams initially wanted to hire his younger brother as a deputy police commissioner for a yearly salary of $240,000, causing an uproar in New York City. A similar waiver was granted to former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. He appointed his wife to head the board of directors for a not-for-profit organization. Adams was elected in November after pledging to tackle violent crime. Convoys of Canadian truckers are on their way to the country's capital city of Ottawa to protest vaccine mandates. They're planning to arrive by Saturday and over the other side of the border, American truckers are setting out to show their support for the movement. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. Thousands of truckers from all across Canada are slow rolling to the doorsteps of their federal government. They're demanding an end to COVID-19 vaccine mandates and other pandemic restrictions. Convoys of truckers and other vehicles sit out from different regions over the weekend with the goal of converging in Ottawa, the nation's capital, on January 29th. Organizers estimate over 10,000 drivers are participating in the demonstration and more are on the way. And not just from other parts of Canada, but also the United States. Both the Canadian and U.S. governments recently imposed vaccine mandates for foreign nationals entering their countries. This includes cross-border truckers. For non-citizens, no vaccine means no entry. And while Canada is allowing its unvaccinated citizens in, they then have to quarantine for 14 days. Now, Canadian and American truckers, both vaccinated and unvaccinated, are banding together to oppose the mandate, saying people have the right to choose. Organizers told the Epic Times that the American truckers will meet at several points along the U.S.-Canada border on Saturday when the Canadian drivers arrive in Ottawa. Meeting points are located in Montana, Michigan, North Dakota, New York and Maine. Meanwhile, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Wednesday night decried the views of the truckers making their way to Parliament Hill. The small fringe minority of people who are on their way to Ottawa or who are uh, holding unacceptable uh, views uh, that they're expressing do not represent the views of Canadians who have been there for each other, who know that following the science and stepping up to protect each other is the best way to continue to ensure our freedoms, our rights, our values as a country. The Canadian Trucking Alliance has also said it doesn't support and strongly disapproves of the demonstration. Other critics have warned it could block roads. But the truckers aren't short of support. From videos posted online, it appears the drivers are being welcomed and cheered on in every town they pass through. In some cases, even with fireworks. A Facebook group called Convoy to Ottawa 2022 has over 700,000 members and messages of support have poured in from over 70 countries. Numerous Canadians are expressing their gratitude to the truckers and saying they're placing their hopes in them to end the mandates. Many are also baking and making meals for the drivers. The Convoy's GoFundMe campaign, launched on January 14th, has reached over $6 million. Organizers say this money will be distributed to drivers to help cover travel costs and food.
There's no official tally yet, but if the estimates are correct, these truckers could form the longest convoy in world history. According to the Guinness World Records, the longest truck convoy ever recorded was 7.5 kilometers long, over four and a half miles. In comparison, the Canadian convoy from the west is said to be at least 62 miles long. A number of rally participants and supporters are saying that no matter the outcome of the demonstration, the feeling of unity sparked by the movement will stay. Grace Coulter, NTD News, New York. And the Canadian Prime Minister announced earlier today that he's been exposed to COVID-19 and is isolating at home for five days. This means he won't be at Parliament Hill when the truckers arrive on Saturday. And coming up, the FBI is on the lookout for a suspect they call the Green Gator Bandit. They said he's robbed over a dozen stores in the last three months. And a California redwood forest has been returned to a group of native tribes. An organization dedicated to protecting and preserving redwoods purchased the property and donated it to a tribal council for conservation. That and more on NTD News. A suspect known as the Green Gator Bandit is believed to be involved with over a dozen bank robberies in California. The FBI and law enforcement are on the lookout. The suspect enters the banks with his mask and leaves on foot. We hear more from NTD's David Lamb. At least seven Wells Fargo and four Chase banks were among the top targets that have been suspected of being robbed by the Green Gator. The FBI announced on Wednesday that they're looking for a male suspect alleged to have robbed or attempted to rob banks in Orange and L.A. counties since October 2021. The FBI calls him the Green Gator Bandit based on his neck covering, which can be seen from surveillance photos. The FBI noted that the suspect wears a variety of gators in different colors. He's identified as a 50 to 60 year old white male, approximately six feet tall with a medium to heavy build and gray hair. He's seen wearing a tan jacket in some of the robberies. The FBI said he wears workwear style clothing. Over the past three months, the bandit is suspected to have targeted 14 banks, including on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, with the most recent on January 21st. The Green Gator Bandit typically passes a note, sometimes demanding cash or loose bills from the bank teller. Then he flees on foot. The investigation is being conducted by the FBI and local law enforcement, and they're asking help from the public for more information about the suspect. David Lamb, NCD News, California. A United States District Judge sentenced a South Korean national who poached succulent plants to two years in a federal prison. He attempted to export $150,000 worth of the plants back to his home country. NTD's Jason Blair has the details. A man was sentenced to two years in prison after being charged with poaching at least $150,000 worth of Dudleya succulent plants. He was attempting to export the plants into South Korea. He was also ordered to pay $3,985 in restitution for the cost of replanting the stolen plants. Byung-Soo Kim obtained the plants from native environments in Northern California state parks in 2018. The plants eventually made it to a commercial exporter in Compton, California to be smuggled to Asia. However, local authorities had obtained a search warrant and found 3,715 illegally obtained Dudleyas. 
Kim fled the country and eventually was found again in October of 2019 when he was arrested in South Africa. He was similarly collecting controlled plants and attempting to export them to Asia. He was in custody in South Africa for approximately one year before he was extradited to the U.S. Dudleyas are slow-growing plants and can sometimes take decades to flower. They typically go for $40 to $50 each and sometimes more. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. Over 500 acres of forest land in Northern California has been donated to a group of native tribes this week. The forest was also renamed. NTD's Eileen Ang has the story. An organization called Save the Redwoods League bought a 523-acre forest on the Lost Coast in Mendocino County for $3.55 million in July 2020. They gifted it to the Intertribal Sinkawan Wilderness Council to ensure lasting protection. The forest, formerly known as Andersonia West, is now renamed TCLA Dune, meaning Fish Run Place, in the Sinkawan language. In a statement, a board member of the council said, renaming the property lets people know it's sacred for the native people and that there was a language and a people who lived there long ago. The coastal forest is home to redwood trees, fish, and wildlife. This is the league's second land donation to the council. In 2012, it gave a 164-acre Four Corners property for conservation. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. NBA great Kobe Bryant passed away two years ago this week in a helicopter crash that also killed his daughter and seven others. Sculptor Dan Medina decided to commemorate the two-year anniversary by making a statue of Bryant and his daughter. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Kobe Bryant's sudden death shocked the country two years ago. Though more than three years retired at the time, Bryant's immense popularity never wavered. Now, on the second anniversary of his death, sculptor Dan Medina felt something needed to be done to honor the lives that were lost. So he made a statue of Kobe with his daughter Gigi and placed it at the crash site near Los Angeles. I never got the sense that something was done in the right way to honor the lives that were lost. And this is my attempt to kind of do things the right way. Medina says no one asked him to make a statue and he did it all on his own. I decided to bring it up for the day from sunrise to sunset and kind of create a bit of a, um, a healing process for fans. Fans visiting the site were touched by the gesture and still remembered the day Bryant died. And I remember when this happened, we were at home and we actually could, we live close and we could hear the helicopter and then Neely popped up on my phone and we didn't believe it. And so I wanted to come though of respect and I thought this statue is beautiful. Brian, who won five NBA titles with the Los Angeles Lakers, was married with four girls at the time of the crash. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Tom Brady's decision on whether to come back for another season has captivated NFL fans everywhere. But while every player wants to go out on top, there's many more who suffer through a dismal final season. NTD's Dave Martin again with more. If Sunday's loss to the Rams was Tom Brady's final game, he certainly didn't act like it. While Ben Roethlisberger high-fived fans after playing his final home game before officially announcing his retirement today, Brady's exit Sunday featured none of that. Yet Brady is 44 while Roethlisberger is 39. And while Brady remarkably still led the league in passing yards and touchdowns at such an advanced age, Roethlisberger's total quarterback rating was the lowest of his career. If Brady is looking at Roethlisberger's final year performance as an outlier, there are many more examples. 
NFL all-time leading rusher Emmett Smith spent his final two forgettable seasons in Arizona, averaging a meager 3.3 yards per carry. Jerry Rice, still the NFL's all-time leader in both receptions and receiving yards, turned 42 in his final season, which was far and away his least productive ever. He is even traded during the season to Seattle for a conditional pick. The conditions were never met. Three-time MVP Brett Favre spent his final two seasons in Minnesota, the last of which saw his Ironman streak come to an end while he threw nearly twice as many interceptions as touchdowns. Ditto for Peyton Manning, whose final season in Denver was by far his worst as he tried playing through a torn plantar fascia in his foot. While well, NFL greats Barry Sanders and Jim Brown both retired on top, neither played past their age 30 season. Brady turned 30 back in 2007. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Coming up, days ahead of the Winter Olympics Games and Chinese Lunar New Year, Beijing is using barbed wire to keep local residents in their communities. And Brad Pitt's classic film Fight Club has a different ending in China. In the Chinese version, the government wins and saves the day. We'll take a closer look here on NTD News. the Beijing Winter Olympics go down in history. It's a week before the opening of the Games and the city's growing more and more tense. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. The Winter Olympic Games are just over a week away. In preparation, Beijing has limited movement in more parts of the city. That's to lower infection risk for the Chinese Communist Party or CCP virus, which causes COVID-19. But some of those limits are being enforced with seemingly extreme tools. In some cases, barbed wire has been laid out to block people from leaving their neighborhoods. On Wednesday, Beijing's Fengtai district urged its residents to stay inside, on top of requiring daily virus tests. The district has reported more local cases recently and had already isolated tens of thousands of people in quarantine compounds. According to the National Health Commission, Beijing reported five new local cases on Wednesday. Though due to China's lack of transparency and history of underreporting pandemic data, NTD cannot independently verify that information. Though that official figure remains small, pandemic containment is still being treated with added urgency. That's because on top of Olympic tourism, China's busiest travel season is approaching. The Lunar New Year holiday. Hundreds of millions of people are expected to travel starting early February. For many people throughout Asia, the Lunar New Year is similar to Christmas in the West, an occasion where families reunite to celebrate. One traveler named Wang says he is anxious ahead of the travel season when he plans to visit his hometown. I have no choice but to go home. In another Beijing community, the property management closed a number of entrances and installed barbed wire. They called the actions part of following orders from higher levels. Beyond lockdowns and limits on travel, a local notice on Sunday asked all residents who had purchased certain over-the-counter medicines to get virus tested within 72 hours. The drugs targeted are used to treat symptoms like fever, cough and sore throat. The memo explained authorities would use digital records and data to track such purchases and that those who bought the products would get pop-up testing reminders on their smartphones.
For those that opt not to get tested, the notice states, daily life and mobility may be affected. For two decades, David Fincher's classic film Fight Club has been known for its explosive climax. That's where the protagonist, played by Brad Pitt, watched a cluster of skyscrapers blowing up around him, representing his alter ego destroying consumerism. But the anarchist plot doesn't seem to sit well with the Chinese Communist Party. In the most recent mainland version of the film, the iconic ending was completely removed. Instead, a note appears on the screen telling the audience that the police rapidly figured out the whole plan and arrested all criminals, successfully preventing the bomb from exploding. After the trial, Tyler was sent to a lunatic asylum receiving psychological treatment. In the Chinese version, the government is portrayed as being on the side of justice, beating the villain and saving the day. A screenshot of the new ending went viral on Chinese social media. The edit has caused some backlash among film fans. One commented, I am blown away by the fact that Fight Club's ending is changed. This is not just a small insignificant film, not to say that an insignificant film can be changed, but this is Fight Club, one of the most important and highly reviewed crime thrillers in film history. The comment continued that by the logic of this edit, can the protagonist from the Shawshank Redemption still break out of prison successfully? The entire Corleone family and the Godfather should have long been locked up by the police. Would Batman, who represents extra-legal justice, still be allowed to exist? This is not the first time Brad Pitt has met with Chinese censorship. He was reportedly banned in China for nearly 20 years until 2016. That's after he played in a 1997 film featuring an Austrian explorer's friendship with a young Dalai Lama, Tibet's spiritual leader, who now lives in exile. The film depicted the Chinese military's bloody invasion of Tibet and the persecution of Tibetan monks. A special committee by the European Parliament has been investigating for about 18 months how foreign agents are influencing and subverting EU countries. The director of a French military think tank now says why there's hope for the EU to better understand the threat of Chinese influence operations. This report comes from NTD's France correspondent David Vives. How the Chinese Communist Party is looking to infiltrate and influence EU countries is increasingly becoming a hot topic for the European Parliament. A EU special committee on foreign interference and disinformation has now finalized its inquiry that started one and a half years ago. The committee has conducted 50 hearings with around 130 experts. It has been investigating the different ways in which foreign agents infringe and subvert democratic processes. The committee has focused on both organizations as well as governmental actors, including China. Jean-Baptiste Jean-Jean Vilmer is the director of the Institute for Strategic Research at French Ministry of the Armed Forces. He mentioned some of the committee's conclusions. Here are some measures proposed by the committee provide financing alternatives to Chinese foreign direct investment, used as a geopolitical tool. So we see they care about the Chinese influence operations. Another point is to ban foreign funding of political parties in Europe. In September 2021, Wilmer's Institute released a 650-page report on China's influence operation. The report details key strategies by the Chinese Communist Party to project its influence in foreign countries. For example, it mentions direct interference into electoral systems, as in the case of Canada and Australia. Another example documented in the report is how the CCP partners with 
or sometimes recruits former politicians and invites members of parliament to travel to China. This allows the CCP to get information or intelligence on foreign countries and also open doors for Chinese companies to enter foreign markets. And also one recommendation by the committee is to make it harder for the CCP to recruit high-level politicians soon after they have retired. In Taiwan, there is a problem with former generals. When these generals retire, they are offered by the Chinese to work for them. They are being paid to provide information on their colleagues in the military, who are still on active duty in the country. The president of the special committee is no other than Rafael Glucksmann, who is a voice against rigorous persecution in China. Jean-Jean Vilmer says there is hope that the committee's warning on China's influence will have an impact in future policies. If that is the case, it means the EU parliament is increasingly becoming an important voice against China's influence. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. And the European Union today launched a case against China at the World Trade Organization. They're concerned about discriminatory trade practices against Lithuania. The Commission says China's actions threaten the integrity of the EU single market, affecting trade and supply. And coming up, Poland has started building a nearly $400 million wall on its eastern border, intended to block migrants from crossing illegally into the European Union. And an American couple is turning a rundown estate in Scotland into wilderness. In fact, many foreigners are buying up properties and changing the way they're managed. Traditional Scottish landowners, also called lairds, are skeptical about these new projects. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Poland has started building a nearly $400 million wall on its eastern border intended to block migrants from crossing illegally into the European Union. The EU calls the migrant surge a hybrid attack launched by Belarus. Today, reporters were allowed to see the work in restrict the restricted area 157 miles from Warsaw. Poland's 18-feet-high metal wall topped with barbed wire is to run more than 115 miles along the border with Belarus. Two construction companies are to work on it around the clock, starting in four different locations. It's due to be completed in June at the cost of some $394 million. This construction of the physical barrier will end in June, but remember that the electronic barrier will be constructed in parallel and will be fully operational by September. The wall is meant to block the flood of migrants from the Middle East and Africa, who are mostly headed for Germany. The European Union says the migrants are being used by Belarus's authoritarian leader to put pressure on the bloc. That's in retaliation for the EU's sanctions on Minsk over an election many considered as rigged and other rights abuses. The migrant surge began last summer, leading to clashes with Poland's border guards. The Belarusian side is ready to do anything when it comes to provocations, so we have to be ready for any kind of event. Poland has sealed its border with Belarus using razor wire and increased the number of guards. International efforts have been taken to warn off migrants seeking to enter the EU from Belarus. At least 12 migrants have died in the bogs and forests of the border area, and conditions have gotten worse in the sub-freezing winter temperatures. Critics and environmentalists say the wall will fail to stop migrants, but will do harm to one of Europe's last pristine woodlands, the Beloesia Forest. 
American property developers bought a run-down estate in Scotland and plan to turn it into wilderness where animals are protected. They're just two of the, folk, of the multi-millionaires who are buying up the Scottish Highlands and changing the way they're managed. Some of Scotland's traditional owners, also known as lairds, are voicing doubt over the rewilding projects. Here are the details. On the edge of the Scottish Highlands lies a five and a half thousand acre estate called Kildrummy. It was recently bought by American property developers Christopher and Camille Bentley. The Bentleys joined the growing ranks of so-called green lairds, climate savvy millionaires who are buying up Scottish land and transforming the way it's managed. Kildrummy was operated as a shooting estate and so really intensely managed for that purpose. The Bentleys bought Kildrummy Estate for about $15 million. Its manor house was built in 1901 to accommodate grouse shooting parties and its land was intensely managed. Heather-clad moors were burned to improve breeding conditions for the grouse and their predators, such as foxes, were hunted and trapped. The Bentleys have banned trapping and shooting at Kildrummy. They plan to turn the estate into a semi-wilderness where dwindling species are revived and protected. Across the way, we're looking at the Glen Kindy estate, our neighbor, their hunting estate. And they, though, have managed their land very sympathetically with the environment. We're looking to piggyback off of that and replicate that here, where you see a heavily burned, heavily managed moorland that was um, kept this way for far too long. Not far away lies a former shooting estate named Bunloit. It belongs to another green laird, Jeremy Leggett. Leggett is a long-time climate campaigner who made his millions from solar power. After 20 years as a solar entrepreneur, I went from being told that I was a rootless dreamer and solar energy would never be making energy for grown-ups who really knew about energy, through to where we are now, I thought, why not try and have a go at helping create that kind of exponential growth elsewhere in the survival story, right at the end, taking carbon down out of the atmosphere. Leggett hopes that research at Bunloit will accelerate a land management revolution in Scotland. I think 100 years from now, if we get this right, much of Scotland is going to look like small parts of Scotland do today. Ancient woodlands with oak trees hundreds of years old. The rise of the green layers has revived debates about who owns Scotland's land and what they're doing with it. Campaigners say fewer than 500 people own more than half of Scotland's private land, and many of them are foreigners. Some traditional lairds are deeply sceptical about proponents of rewilding. One of them is 74-year-old Jamie Williamson. The people who are pushing this rewilding tend to be people from an urban background or a foreign country who's come in here. Williamson runs Alvi and Dalradi, a traditional sporting estate. He says he's been struggling to maintain his revenue from grouse shooting and deer stalking on his estate, which is surrounded by prominent rewilding projects. He also says planting native woodlands in Scotland won't avert climate change so long as the country imports cheap timber from overseas. If we actually brought back in and produced our own 
um, steel and iron and brought back our polluting industries but ran them more efficiently, we'd actually probably do far more for global warming than peatland restoration or growing very slow growing trees here. Coming up, two inspiring stories of centenarians who won't let old age hold them back. A former prisoner of war still cycles 100 miles each week around the English countryside, while a hospital volunteer in London brings positive energy and motivation to doctors. Stay tuned to find out more. A 100-year-old man won't let old age keep him from his passion, cycling. Veteran Norman Gregory cycles 100 miles every week around the English countryside. Here's his story. Everybody knows Norman in Bury St. Edmunds. His high-visibility jacket and bike are a familiar sight on these roads. He cycles 100 miles every week, 5,000 miles a year, around the sleek Suffolk lanes. Today, the village is out in force to wish him a very happy 100th birthday. Happy birthday to you. So you're a bit of a local celebrity. I am. I'm, I'm the, the village hero. Life has not always been as calm as this quiet Suffolk village. Norman served with Bomber Command in World War II and became a prisoner of war when his plane was shot down over Germany. During his time in captivity, he spent a lot of time on the road but on foot rather than on his beloved bicycle. We were on the road 21 days, marching between 15 and 20 kilometers every day. And there was a meter of snow on the ground and it froze night and day. Those days are long behind him. Now when he takes to the road, it is very much on his own terms and he avoids bad weather. I still enjoy it uh, unless the weather conditions suddenly change. Like you can't cope on a bike with a wind of 50 or 60 miles an hour, all I can say is the freedom of the open road. At 100 years old, he has no plans to give up his bike anytime soon. So what can any budding cyclists learn from him? Well, if you're not used to cycling, my top tip is, for goodness sake, don't overdo it. Expert advice from someone with almost a century of experience. And yet another inspiring story from a British centenarian. Most people eagerly await retirement in their 60s, but not Beryl Carr. At 100 years old, the hospital volunteer shows no signs of slowing down. Here's more. Can I have a cup of coffee? Coffee? Beryl Carr has been volunteering at Ealing Hospital in London for the last 18 years and works at the hospital's Friends Cafe. Although she was born near the hospital, she later moved away, but then returned to be near her daughter after her husband died. Carr, who celebrated her 100th birthday in January, said the volunteering keeps her going. It's my lifeline and I enjoy coming and it's a worthwhile job. I'm helping people that are not as fortunate as I am or as well as I am. And her commitment and friendliness has won her many fans at the hospital. I think she's a complete inspiration. Um, many of us look at her. She's always got a smile on her face, a swagger as she walks. Um, and you come back from a clinic or a ward round, you're absolutely tired and she just inspires you as soon as you see her. It gives me a lot of motivation 
you know, thinking that, you know, with hard times going on with the COVID and all that, and if Beryl can do it, I think, like I said, it motivates all of us. However, Carr made it clear she wouldn't be sharing the secrets to her longevity. If I told you it wouldn't be a secret, that's my answer. <laughs> and that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.